want to say. So, Lord, I want to thank you for Michael. I pray that you'd just empower him and give him the, the wisdom and the impact that, that you desire for all of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hello, everyone. As you heard, I'm Michael Hendricks. That's my wife, Claudia. We're from Boulder, Colorado. So we flew in, what, on Wednesday, I think it was? Thursday? Thursday. And, of course, we had a few hours uh, free yesterday, and guess what we did? We drove to the ocean. Because <laughs> we're mountain people, but we love the ocean. So every time I'm anywhere near, I want to make sure just to see it. We didn't go into the ocean, but we drove there. We have three kids. Elias is our oldest son, Megan and Anna. And just this morning, Anna's our youngest, I paid our last tuition for college in her senior year. So I'm filled with some satisfaction about that. And my daughter is too, I believe. Um, so this morning, we're going to talk about confusion. We're going to talk about my confusion as a pastor of a church, as a pastor of discipleship, and how God used this confusion... Uh, to teach me and actually change the, the path of my life, okay? So confusion is a good thing, believe it or not. God uses confusion often. Um, when I was a pastor of discipleship, I was really, really um, my main focus is how do I help the people who get here to our church, uh, how do we help them grow and mature and to act like Jesus more and more, spontaneously, just so it kind of comes out of them as the natural thing? How do I help them love like Jesus loves people? And the peak of that goal is how do I help them love uh, people that actually feel like enemies, right? That's one of the hardest things Jesus, it's, I think it's his hardest command. You know, a central command that covers all of our commands is to love, right? The hardest part of that command is to love your enemies, love the people that are hard to love, okay? And so that's what I started doing. I made trainings, I wrote books, we did all this kind of stuff, and I would see the same pattern over and over again where some of the trainings and books and uh, programs I made, they would just knock people, uh, they blow people away and say, this, this changed my life, this saved my marriage. I never knew we did these things, kinds of things in church. And so they worked really well and really encouraging. Sometimes. And for some people. Other times they didn't seem to work at all. And for other people, they don't, didn't seem to take, get any traction at all. And even in my own life, there were some problems that seemed, I would call them my stubborn problems, and, uh, and the usual Christian kind of answers for things didn't seem to touch these problems. They really helped me with this other stuff in my life to become more like Jesus, but this thing seems like stuck for me, right? And so I got to a point in my, in my career as a pastor where I had a lot more questions than I had answers. One of my questions was, why do I sometimes see non-Christians treating people better than some Christians I know? Why does that happen? Why do I sometimes see pastors act in ways that don't really look like Jesus? Some pastors, not all. Right? Why do I see pastors um, getting so burnt out and just fried? And why don't we see, and here's like a big one, why don't we see more radical transformation of character in our church more every day, all the time? We see some. I'm not saying we don't see some. But why don't we see it all the time? And so, um, you know, even in my own life, you know, problems I had, I would memorize Scripture and it would help. And there's other problems where I'd memorize Scripture, I'd pray, I'd have people pray for me, I'd interact with God, I'd ask for Him to heal me. 
And still it seemed like it just did, just kind of stuck there. And I'm like, God, I'm, I'm not sure I know what's going on here. And it seems to me there's pieces of a puzzle that I don't have yet. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about, what do we do when the usual Christian prescriptions don't seem to work? I'm very careful in how I'm stating it. They don't seem to work. I'm not saying or impl- even implying that the usual Christian things we do to help us grow, like uh, you know, reading the Bible and prayer, listening to sermons and good teaching, reading books, getting involved in a church, making better choices, being filled with the Holy Spirit. For me, for example, reading and studying the Bible is a very, very powerful and transformative part of my life. God spoke to me and speaks to me often through Scripture. He speaks to me other ways as well. But, it, but in some areas of my life and some kinds of problems, the Bible alone didn't seem to help me. And so this is kind of big stuff. There's a little bit. I can feel a little bit of tension in the room. So let's, let's first pray and ask God to, di- to direct this time uh, together uh, for the next, you know, how long I, I speak. I won't speak too long. And, uh, and come before him. So, Lord, thank you, Father, that you are a good father. Thank you that you sent us a son who really knew how to love well. And so it's not just information teaching us to love, but we have an example of the perfect person who loved really good people, really hard people, really confusing people, and he loved them well. He stayed himself the whole time. And so as we delve into this kind of confusion you brought me into, I pray that you would bless this room, fill this room with your Holy Spirit, guide and take your words by Holy Spirit into the people's hearts, into my heart as I speak, and we look to you to guide this time and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in my confusion about my job, and specifically about how people change, I got to a point where I'd be in my my office at the church sitting down looking at a dry erase board scratching my head and saying, and finally admitting to God, I don't think I know how to do my job. You know, you could say that was a prayer. Dear God, I don't know how to do my job as a pastor. Amen. Right? It was stated as a prayer, even though there wasn't an ask there. I'm just stating something. But God heard that prayer. And several months later, I got a telephone call from someone uh, who said they visited our church and saw some of the discipleship things I'm doing and they wanted to have lunch with me. So we get, went, sat down and had lunch. And uh, this is a man from another church in Denver, a big church. And he said, I love what you're doing. You know, I was, I was, I've been doing discipleship all my life and, and the stuff you're doing in this church, I'm not seeing any other church do. Let's sit down and let's start to get to some other pastors and start meeting and figuring out this problem, figuring out these pieces of the puzzle that seem to be missing. And so we started having lunch every week. I pulled some more pastor friends in. And it was during one of these lunches where this man, his name's Bob, he's 85 years old. He said, you know, I think we're ignoring an area of discipleship, and that's uh, neuroscience and how that affects discipleship. And, uh, you know, he's 85, he's kind of old. I thought maybe he was having a senior moment because what he said didn't make any sense to me at all. And so I kind of ignored him, to be honest with you. And we just talked about something else. Thankfully, a month later, we had lunch again, the group of us, and he said it again. He goes, you know, again, I don't want to, you know, I just want to say it again. I think we're ignoring how God designed the brain to, to, to help us with discipleship. And I said, Bob, I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean the brain and discipleship? And he got this little kind of wise smile, little smile. He says, well, 
Let me invite my friend Jim Wilder to our next meeting next month. I think he can probably explain it better. And so we had lunch again a month later, and this man, Jim Wilder, uh, comes in, and he sits down, and we're talking, and he looks at me across the table and said, Michael, what would you like out of this lunch? And I kind of shared him with, with him my frustrations where things seemed to work sometimes and they didn't see, seem to work other times and different problems. Everything I just shared with you. And he looked at me and he goes, you know, Michael, I think it might help you to understand a little bit about how God designed the human brain to mature us and to grow our character into the image of Jesus. And when he said that, I'd been a Christian for maybe 30, 35 years. I'd been to seminary. I'd been a missionary. I'd done all these stuff. I'd been a pastor. And in 35 years, no one had ever mentioned anything like that into my, in, in my Christian experience ever. The brain, right? And so I was all ears, and I'm like, okay, tell me. And he started explaining the brain to us. And I'm not going to explain it to you deeply today, but kind of more of as a general level from what we're learning in the brain, how it works. We're just learning this in the last 20 years because of brain scans and all this other technology. We see the fingerprints of God in the human brain and how he designed us to grow as his children. Many of the skills we learn from brain science, things that, that show us that are important for us to learn, relational skills, they're also all over the Bible. But we've kind of lost their importance, so when we read them in the Bible, we kind of just skip over them and don't really realize how key these little phrases are. And we've stopped in our churches, largely we've stopped teaching them to our people. This especially happened in the last thousand years. So this is a long, long decline in this area. These skills are largely relational skills, okay? Things like um, knowing how to attune to people. What, we, what even is that, right? Bonding at a deep level. Regulating our emotions. Even when we're in difficult times and there's some big emotions involved. Helping other people when they're stuck in big emotions. How do we help them in that? And learning to live out of our true identities. The identity that Jesus gave, that, that Jesus sees when he sees us. That sometimes we, don't, we lose ourselves, but he sees this. And loving our enemies. Loving our enemies is a very deeply relational, heavy a relational skill. Okay? A very difficult task. And so my wife and I, we just kind of dove into the deep end of the pool. Jim and Kitty Wilder opened the doors of their house to us, and we just started doing everything. They invite us to every little training, everything they did. And one of the things that Jim says is we really don't have a brain. We really have two brains that work together. We have a relational brain, and we have a, ra a rational brain. And he said, we've put most of our discipleship into the rational brain, and we've started basically ignoring in the church our relational brain. And then he said something I'll never forget in my life. And he said, and most character change and maturity are more dominantly relational brain tasks, not rational brain tasks. So we're actually ignoring the part of the brain that's the thing that transforms us. And this is all God's design. It's all God's fingerprints. And so these right brain, the right brain's the relational brain. These skills have gone largely missing. You know, we don't train people in these skills. We may not even think they're very important. Um, but when we start building these skills back, and one, a lot of what my wife and I are doing and others, we're trying to bring these back into the church as a normal part. We're not trying to get rid of the stuff we've been doing. We're trying to add this to it because it makes everything better. And so as people start doing these new skills, and I'm going to kind of talk about one of them today, we come into a more what we would call a full-brained faith 
we'll see changes even in our emotional fabric. I've seen my wife and I are experiencing this right now. We've been doing this for five years. Here's some examples. Um, as we do this, we're more naturally curious, flexible, and resilient. We have less of a need to prove that we're right. Doesn't mean that truth's not important. We just have less of a need to prove we're right. We look at everything through a relational lens. We love well, we connect well, and we, we, we repair relational ruptures in a way that makes the relationship actually grow and become better. Is anybody who doesn't want to know that? And, uh, and we experience the love and presence of Jesus more consistently. And when we lose that sense of his love, we know how to repair that rupture. Okay? And we see these relational skills all over the Bible. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Jesus today, a Jewish man living in the first century. Uh, and he, he encountered in his life people with all sorts of problems, all sorts of different kinds of problems in his life. And he didn't always use the usual Christian prescriptions to help them. Sometimes he did. Sometimes he did other things, and we're, we're thinking, like, well, why did he know to do that, right? And so let's, let's look at a story in the Bible. It's a picture, really, of transformation, which, which is what we're talking about here. And uh, so we're going to go to Luke 9, 19. And it's the story of Jesus' Zacchaeus. Most of you have probably heard of this story. It's really an interesting story because it's packed with a lot of details, crucial details, historical-wise and also brain details that you might have never seen before, even though you read this story a hundred times, okay? So we're going to kind of dig into this story. Um, and so let's start reading in Zacchaeus 19, starting at verse 1. I mean, Luke 19, sorry. <laughs> so it starts out saying, He, Jesus, he entered into Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, this is the man we're going to take a look at today. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. He was a, he was a short man. Okay? So we're going to push pause right here, stop right here, take a look at some details, at some subtler points that maybe you've missed in the past. Okay? If you were not a Jew living in the first century, um, in, in Israel that was occupied by Roman occupation, you might miss some of these details that are really important to understand this story. There's not a single word in this story that's missing or needs to be added. It's kind of like a really, really good recipe of food that has every ingredient you need. It doesn't have anything extra. It's just perfect balance. That's the story. Everything is there. Okay. So one detail. It says he is a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector even, and he was rich. Okay, very important detail, um, because this is under Roman occupation. So to give you some context, let's just say that, let's imagine that the Roman Empire still exists today, and they went to war against our country, America, and we lost that war, and they took over our country, they started filling our cities with Roman soldiers, and then they started demanding a cut of all of our money. To, to send back to Rome. And it was way far too below a Roman soldier to go collect taxes. That's a lowly job. So they would hire some, some Americans to do that, right? They'd come and collect taxes. 
and, uh, and use the Ameri- some Americans to do the dirty work. So suddenly, one of your neighbors, the person who lives three, three houses down from you, starts regularly knocking on your door and demanding your money. Over time, your house and your cars start falling into disrepair because you don't have money to repair them. You have no money to fix your roof that needs to be re-roofed and is starting to leak. And you're just barely getting by. Meanwhile, this neighbor of yours, three houses down, uh, you see he just bought two brand new cars and he's putting a new addition on his house. This is the situation we're in now that Zacchaeus is in. How do you feel about this neighbor of yours? Right? So when it says that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he could not, we often miss the implication that the streets were lined with people because Jesus was getting a reputation then. Someone could have easily done this for a shorter man. Let them in through, and we close it up. They don't even lose their view, right? Um, But no, no one then, not a single person in that entire crowd lining both sides of that street let him through to the front. It's almost like I'm, I'm not opening a space for this man. He just took half of my paycheck last month to buy himself a brand new car. And so on that street that day, everyone hated him because he was a tax collector. But even worse, though, he not only just collected taxes, sometimes he would collect extra for himself. So he was not only a traitor, but he was also a thief. And after all, he had the entire Roman Empire behind him. If you, if you challenged him or you pushed back on him, you would really quickly find yourself executed and your family thrown out onto the street. So he had all the power behind him. And so, you know, one word and you're a dead person. And so in a sense, we're thinking he's, he's, living, he's, he's causing us to live in poverty while he's living in luxury, right? And this was understood by everyone that day lining the street on both sides waiting to see Jesus come down the street. Nobody let him in. Not just that, there were looks on their faces that he could feel. And so this gives you a little bit of an idea of the emotional background of this story, even before we haven't even gotten to the story yet, but this gives you some background of that story um, that isn't explicitly written there, but it's very much implied, and you see this from history. Well, Zacchaeus, you know, has an idea then. He looks around on the street. Let's, let's read in the next verses. It said, so, so Zacchaeus, he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And so when Jesus came to that place, so he's walking down the street, he comes to the place where the tree is, and he looked up and he said to him, okay, let's, let's push pause again, okay, a couple good details here. Um, let's ask a question, important question here before we even think about what, see what Jesus says. What do you think the average town thinks, that town person thinks, when um, that Jesus is about to say to Zacchaeus in that moment? I mean, it's pretty shocking that he stops from that tree, looks up at Zacchaeus, and they, they, can, they connect eyes. What do you think he's going to say? What do you think the average person? Oh, oh no. Yep. Yeah. Zacchaeus, you traitor. 
right? He's thinking, this is what Jesus is going to say. Zacchaeus, you're a traitor. God will judge you for betraying your own Jewish people. You're betraying your own people and bringing them to poverty. Shame on you, Zacchaeus. You know, that's what I would probably think if I were a Jewish man lining the streets and looking at Zacchaeus up in a, up in a tree. What do you think Zacchaeus expected from Jesus? Well, I honestly think, from what I read, I don't think Zacchaeus was even expecting Jesus to stop and even look at him. You know, he was just watching from a tree to try to catch a glimpse of this famous man who had been healing people and who had been performing miracles, and he just wanted to see him. I didn't think he thought anything would even happen, right? It's kind of like with a famous movie star is coming, you're just trying to get in so you can see the person for the first time in real life, right? And uh, so that's what I think he expected, but that's not what, that's very much not what happened. So let's take a look at what happened. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Okay, now let's delve into some brain science, why don't we? We've got some brain science going on here, believe it or not. We skip right past this crucial part, and once we learn a little bit about how God designed the human brain, you'll start, as you reread the Bible, you'll start picking up things you've never picked up before. Because we see the fingerprints of Jesus in the, the way he designed our brains, and it very much lines up with what we read in the Bible. Things you've never seen. So when we read in this story that Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus, he looked at him, what kind of expression do you think was on Jesus' face in that moment? Set aside his words for now. We haven't got there yet. Okay? Imagine Jesus' face. Okay, close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes and put yourself in Zacchaeus' place. You show up to the street, it's all lined. You can feel the faces, though. They don't want you there. But you see the tree. So you run over to the tree, and you climb it up onto a branch, and you're looking. And Jesus is way down the road and slowly working your way, slowly by slowly coming towards you, coming closer. And then suddenly he looks up, and his eyes meet your eyes. What is his face communicating? His eyes. Okay, what if I were to tell you that the human brain was designed around this kind of interaction? Face to face, eye to eyes. This kind of nonverbal interaction. Our brains right now, or even one of us here, are scanning our environment, our environment six times a second looking for people whose faces are telling us, I'm really glad to be with you. And you're special to me. And that we're, we're bonded together. That's the design of Jesus in our brains. Right? This is called joy, relational joy. The neuroscience scientists call this relational joy. And the def definition of, of relational joy, according to the researchers in UCLA who came up with this and found this the first time through brain scans, is joy is what I feel in my body when I can tell from your face 
and even especially the sparkle in your eye that you are glad to be with me and that I'm special to you. What do you think Zacchaeus felt in that moment, right? He was despised by the, by the crowd. He was not feeling joy from the crowd. He's feeling the opposite of joy, right? They didn't want him there. They're not happy to be with him. He is not special to them. But then this man comes to town who's been healing, he's been performing miracles, and he looks at him with a face that he did not expect in that moment. And non-verbally, Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, I'm glad to be with you right now. You are special to me, Zacchaeus. And that was about the last thing Zacchaeus expected Jesus to say, say to him in that moment. And then his words echoed what his face had already communicated. And he basically says, I want to go to your house tonight for dinner. Will you invite me? And so tying this back to the title of my talk, uh, the interesting thing about joy is that from neuroscience, the character, our character and our maturity, in the presence of joy, our character and maturity grow really easily and well. Joy functions almost like fertilizer and soil to our character. But when joy is low or absent, meaning there are very few people in my life who are happy to be with me, whose faces are glowing and special, feeling, that make me, making me feel special. When we have very few of those interactions with people around us, we are pretty much stuck. Our character is pretty much stuck. Nothing really grows well in that environment. And so that is why some of the typical Christian solutions don't work. It's not that they're not good. It's that when our joy is low, it's kind of like having a really good car that doesn't have any gas in the gas tank. How useful is that car to you in that moment? Not very useful. You can't do a whole lot with a car with no gas, even if the car is working perfectly well. And so we are ignoring an important variable that we learn from brain science, but we see all over Scripture. We see Jesus right now doing this very thing. Our brains grow in the presence of joy, and joy makes everything else we do work better. So joy combines with everything else we do and makes it work better. Now, it's important to notice that Jesus did not give Zacchaeus a little mini-sermon at that point. Instead, he gave him a burst of joy, and that's all he gave him. I'm glad you're in that tree, Zacchaeus. I'm so glad, but I'd like to invite myself over to your home. My mom told me, you don't invite yourself over to people's homes. Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with that. <laughs> exactly. I love it. And when, Jesus, when Zacchaeus saw his face and heard those words, boom, that was an explosion of joy in his brain. It was like pouring gasoline in an empty tank. And he went from low joy, people were not happy that he was there, to high joy. Jesus was really glad to be with him. But joy is not happiness. We need to be careful here. Joy is not happiness. Joy is happy to be togetherness. Joy does not mean that we need to be happy all the time, that we need to paste like a, a, a fake plastic Christian smile on our faces all the time. That's not joy. Joy means that we're glad to be get together in the good times and the hard times. Joy can be happy and joyful, but it can also be quite somber. But it's still communicating, we are together in this. You and I are together, even in, in this difficult thing, right? 
Joy is always relational. It's always an interaction with another person or an interaction with God. You know, when Paul writes, be joyful always, you know, if joy is happiness, that's a really cruel thing for Paul to say, to tell someone, be happy always. What, what are you talking about? That's almost like, like sociopathic to say that. But he's not saying that. He's saying, be joyful always. Really what that means is stay connected with your people who are happy to be with you in the good times and the bad. Interact in, with Jesus in the good times and the bad and feel his face shining on you as well. To keep your joy tanks filling up, even in the hard stuff, Fill them up in the good stuff. Fill them up in the boring times of life. Fill them up in the exciting times of life. Everything we do, we're going with our people bonded and we're happy to be together in the good and the bad and the boring and the exciting. Joy is not happiness. My wife and I learned this a couple years ago. I was at home working, actually writing this book. And uh, early afternoon, all of a sudden, I heard a lot of sirens going off. More sirens than I'd ever heard in my life go off at the same time. And I'm like, well, I wonder what happened. But I kind of ignored it and continued writing. And later I brought up uh, the, the newspaper and realized there had been a shooting at the, at the supermarket five blocks from our home. And a gunman had got into that supermarket and had mowed down 12 people. And a couple days later, the list of the victims came out, and one of the victims' name was Denny, and he was a good friend from high school of both, of both of our daughters. And both of our daughters called up, and we cried over the phone. Very quickly, they shut down that supermarket, and they put a chain-link fence all the way around, and people started going to the chain-link fence and putting flowers in each of the chain links, and it very quickly became a complete wall of flowers. Because in times like that, we need as much beauty as we can muster. We need flowers. God created flowers when there's nothing else we can think of. And then it became kind of, there were memorials there. If someone put up 12 crosses with the pictures of each of the victims. And I was talking with my daughter, Anna, who's going to the university in our town. And I said, Anna, we need to cry together. We, do, we don't need to cry alone only. And she said, Dad, can we go over to the memorial together? So Cloudy and I got in our car, drove over to her apartment. A couple of her roommates, who weren't even from Boulder, wanted to come with us. And we walked down this wall of flowers and saw these victims. The air was so still, it was thick. It was almost thick as you breathed it. With the solemnness and, and the sadness. And when we came to the cross that had Denny's picture on it, my daughter, Anna, bent down and took a Sharpie that someone had left there and wrote a, a message to him and said, thank you for sharing that song with me in middle school. It's become one of my all-time favorite songs. And then she got up and turned around, and we all, five of us, hugged each other and wept and cried together. That was a very joyful moment, but it was not happy. It was joyful because we were being sad together. We were glad to be together as we mourn these victims. So joy can be somber. We need to cry to be together. And joy can be exact. We can, it can be exciting, and we dance, and we, and we hug each other. Um, we can even, even ex learn to experience joy in really, really big emotions, negative feeling emotions. That's actually a goal of one of the trainings I do when I work with churches, is we actually target the big emotions and, and there's exercises you can do that train your brain to be relational and joyful and stay yourself in the big emotions. Big ones, including shame. Anger. When's the last time you used anger to improve relationships? 
If you know how to stay joyful in anger, you know how to use anger in a way that makes your relationship better, not worse. When's the last time shame improved a friendship? When's the last time despair helped your marriage? A lot of times we try to avoid these emotions because they scare us, but when you learn to have capacity in these emotions, they actually are great advancers of our emotional bonding. And that's part of our training. That's some of this, left, this right brain training. And so let's all take a really deep breath. Five seconds in. Five seconds out. That's a heavy story I shared. And a deep breath is another brain thing that resets our brain and lets it rest. Let's take another breath together. Enter through our nose and out through our mouth. So we need to build joy all of our lives. From the moment we're born, a baby starts building joy with a mother, first through her scent, and then as as the little baby's eyes come online, you know, the baby's feeding, and when the baby's full, as always they do, then they open, they look at mommy, and they smile, and that smile bumps mommy's joy up, and the mommy smiles, which bumps the baby's joy up, but the baby smiles, and they start doing this thing called climbing joy mountain together. That process actually is filling in and building and rewiring the baby's brain. The mother is downloading her brain to the baby through her eyes. The baby's brain, part of the mother's brain is being imprinted through those. But it's not just that. It's the climb joy mountain, and pretty soon the baby has, is full of joy and can't take any more joy, and the baby will break eye contact. And the wise mother will let the baby break eye contact. She stops building joy and lets the baby rest, and the baby absorbs the joy. Ah. Maybe it takes a minute, and then after a minute, boom, the baby's back with mommy, and they're, they're going up Joy Mountain again. Then they rest, and they go up Joy Mountain again. Then they rest. And this joy and rest cycle, in the first four months, uh, they've done some studies. These happen 100 times a day for the first four months of the baby. That process is what builds the baby's brain in, in a very, very, very healthy way. Joy, but we need joy till the day we die. We need rest till the day we die. We need that circle, that life-giving circle till the day we die. And our faces, our faces are central. Faces are key to joy. Giving people our faces and letting our, our faces shine on each other. I have a, a, a verse here in the next slide from number six, a very important slide, very important verse, because it's one of the few times when God actually teaches the people a prayer to pray over. He teaches Moses and Aaron this prayer over the nation of Israel. And it says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And now up in that tree... Zacchaeus finds himself face to face with God. Whether he realizes it or not, I don't think he realized it in the moment. But what do we find in the face of Jesus? Scripture says we find the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Let's go to the next slide, which is 2 Corinthians 4 6. Very important slide. And it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, that's the creation, right? That same God made his light shine in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed where? In the face of Christ, in the face of Jesus. So Zacchaeus, in that moment, up in that tree, got a huge dose of the glory of God shining through the face of of Jesus, which is very interesting theologically. You go back to our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, we cannot see the face of God and live. That's what God said. You you will die if you see my face. Moses asked God, can I see your face? God said, Moses, I cannot let you see my face. That That would kill you. But I will let you see me as I pass by. But you cannot see my face. Interesting. And now we have Zacchaeus up in a tree. Zacchaeus, a thief and a traitor to the nation of Israel. And he's looking at the face of God, and he does not die. Wow. Hmm. Maybe something different's happening here that we've never seen before. Just the opposite. Not only does he not die, he encounters life in that moment. And he started to transform in that moment. And Zacchaeus was never the same person again. That moment was a turning point in Zacchaeus' life. He was never the same person. So now there's a time shift in this story, if you're reading it. There's a time pause because they get over to the, the Zacchaeus' house and a party has started. Okay? So we're kind of jumping. They know the, the author doesn't put those details in, but we're in, now we're in Zacchaeus' house. Um, they're all in the house, and everyone is eating, everyone is drinking. It's probably pretty loud, and there's a lot of rowdy people there, the kind of people that Zacchaeus hangs out with which are not the kind of people that a lot of the Jewish people hanging around with that time, during those days. And so this next slide says um, that that some of the Jewish people came and they followed him because they couldn't believe what was happening. And it says, and when they saw it, when they saw this this big party, Jesus with these rowdy people partying, eating and drinking, when they saw that, what did they do? They grumbled, it says, says Scripture. He has gone to be in the guest, the guest of a man who is a sinner, right? So imagine yourself, put yourself back into it. You, you're losing your house to this man, right? Your car doesn't work anymore. Or in those days, it would have been your donkey, maybe. <laughs> and so, you, and that, so that the people are going to his house and seeing Jesus party with these people, and they're thinking, you know, that thief, that traitor who's causing me to lose my house and my business. Why is Jesus even giving him the time of day? What is Jesus thinking? And, you know, they have a point. I get him. It'd be easy to dismiss him, but no, I get that. I might, might even be thinking the same thing, given that same circumstance. If I'm losing my house, my business shut down, I'm lo- you know, I can't make it anymore. It makes absolutely no sense what Jesus is doing. Until you see the results of joy. Okay? So let's go what happens next. This is exciting. I'm excited about this story because it gets really exciting. Okay, now in in verse uh, 8 it says, And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord. So this means that Zacchaeus started hearing some of these negative remarks. These comments. He saw the people outside and he heard their comments. Like, what's Jesus doing with these horrible people? The sinful man this traitor, this thief, 
Zacchaeus heard those words, okay? And so it says, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods, all of my personal possessions, all my money, all my 401k plan, all of my bank account, everything I have, I give to the poor this day. And if I have defrauded anyone, what's he doing there? He is confessing his sin and repenting. He's saying, I was a thief. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll, we will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost, the Zacchaeus, okay? This is transformation. We're talking about transformation. This is transformation. If you want to know what transformation looks like, it looks like this. There was no list of do's and don'ts that Jesus gave him. No Bible verses. He didn't quote any Bible verses at him. We might, I might have done that. I probably would have. Instead, he had a face-to-face encounter with God in human flesh. And that face said, you are special to me, Zacchaeus. That's all he needed. Everything else was done. It just happened. And Jesus sat down and had a meal with him and with his friends. So what do you think the people complaining outside then thought now? If I'm losing my house and I, my cars don't work anymore and my business is teetering and about to collapse and all of a sudden I hear this phrase, fourfold, I start going, wait a second. This is not just a bunch of words. It'd be nice if he could have just confessed, so I'm sorry I did that. Oh, we're so bad. I'm really so sorry we did that. That's really bad. He backed it up with his money. This is true repentance. This is doing the hard, it's the hard repentance, not the easy. It's really easy to ask forgiveness. I'm so sorry I did that. Now let's, you know, go our separate ways, right? Let's back it up with your money, with fourfold of what I took from you. So the church, the application to us is the church is really meant and created to be a a high joy environment where our faces are shining on each other. When we get to our small groups and we show up, we can tell from the faces of the people in our small groups that they're really happy I just knocked on the door and came in. Every time that happens, gas tank, gas tank, gas tank, gas tank is going up. Your little needle on your gas tank is going up, right? There's a bunch of more verses on God's face and the importance of our faces to each other and God's face to us. Um, And I actually went back and reread the whole Old and New Testament after learning some of these these brain things. I was so fascinated by it. And you just see stuff all the time that I've never seen before. If you'd like to read more on this topic, our book is called The Other Half of Church. I think uh, Kathy Larson, I think, has copies in the back if you want to buy them. Over here. Over here. She's over there if you want. Um, that'll take you a little bit deeper into some of the biblical um, background for what we're learning from brain brain science about joy and a bunch of other things, actually. There's there's more than just joy. So you can grab a copy. But you might be wondering, how do we increase joy here in the the vineyard of Laguna Niguel? Like, what can we do to make sure people's gas tanks are filling up as a result of coming together, right? How do we grow? Number one is faces. Faces. I was, I was driving down a highway in Colorado, down the, uh, the interstate, and there was one of those screens over the, the, 
the street that's, that give you messages about things like car wrecks and accidents and things like this. But it said something unexpected. It said, phones down, heads up when you're driving. Right? And that's not bad driving advice. But it's also really good parenting advice. My wife and I like to go on walks and hikes. And there's sometimes there's a, uh, one of our hikes that starts out going by a park that's in our neighborhood. And there's all these little toddlers there like these, jumping and running and swinging and doing all these things. And I look back and they're like the most beautiful things you've ever seen. And then I look over to the parents on the bench. Too often they're like this. Our children need our faces like they need us to give them food and clothing. Their little, their little brains are looking six times a second. Does mommy and daddy see me? Did they, did they see me when I jumped? Did they see me when I... They need all the faces they can get of delight and enjoyment and care and tenderness and attunement. Oh, I get, I get what's going on. We need to let our faces shine on each other. It, it, we don't need to, it's not a staring contest. It only needs, in three seconds, how long do you think it took for Jesus to say, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree and I want to have dinner with you. That's probably like a 20, a 10 to 20 second interaction. We only need like three seconds for a big amount of joy to go in. The cashier at the supermarket, thank you. Thank you so much. That's it. Walk away. I've just filled up her gas tank a little bit. It doesn't need to be awkward. It shouldn't be awkward, actually. That would do the opposite. Another way we uh, raise our, our joy and fill our joy tank is through uh, gratitude, exercises of gratitude. In our small groups, do you, do, you can just add simple gratitude before you start, have everyone go around the room and say some little thing they're grateful for in the last few days. That is very well a brain training exercise. You're training your brain to start to scan the environment and look for the good things Jesus has done for me in the last few days. I know the bad things that have happened that I don't like in the last few days. That's usually where I dwell, right, in the, in the things that went wrong. But just like the Israelites, every time God did something good for the nation of Israel, what did he tell them to do? Pile up stones here, right, so that you will not forget because we forget so easy. If I'm a Jewish father and I'm walking with my little daughter down the road a couple hundred years later, my daughter sees these piles of stones and says, Daddy, why are, the, why are those stones piled up there? And I tell her the story of the Israelites and how they crossed over the sea on dry land, right? When we start gratitude, we start piling rocks in our brains of good, all the good things Jesus has done for us, good for God the Father has done through us, all the work the Holy Spirit has done in our lives. And those stay there and we can get back to them quickly because it's a very, very healthy place to, to stay and to dwell. So I'm going to ask you now, think of a time in your life, a memory, sometime. It could be recent, it could be a long time ago when you felt Jesus was close and gave you uh, uh, something beautiful. A gift, maybe it was a person, maybe it was something beautiful in nature. Ask him right now, ask Jesus to bring back a time when uh, something you're very grateful for and you, and you sense Jesus was involved in it. Now go back and relive that grateful memory just for 30 seconds, let's just say. Just live it in almost like a jacuzzi. Sit in that gratitude jacuzzi with Jesus or with God our Father and just enjoy.
Okay, come out of the jacuzzi now. Be careful you don't slip and fall. Here's a towel. The gratitude jacuzzi. What you just did is actually training your brain in a way that allow you to find Jesus in the times you lose him normally. There are times when we lose Jesus. He doesn't lose us. He's always with us. But we lose him. I can't, as far as I can tell, I can't feel Jesus right now when some big things happen, right? So start building a gratitude list of memories. Give them a little title and start making a list. And start, try to work yourself up to three minutes a day of nonverbal gratitude sitting in memories that God, of the beautiful things God has done for you throughout life. And just letting yourself soak in them for a couple minutes every day. You are training your brain and making your, putting your brain in a really healthy place. And you're also training your brain to be able to find Jesus easier in hard times when maybe it's harder to find his, and sense his presence. That's an example of an, 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 the, one of the brain kind of skills that we add to discipleship, okay? When you sat in the jacuzzi with Jesus just now, what did you sense on his face? Joy. That's a twinkle in his eye. Love. Shalom. Contentment. I felt Jesus actually shoulder to shoulder with me. We were looking at something beautiful. We saw my wife and I were driving to the airport a couple days ago to come here. And my wife says, I think I see a bald eagle. Wait, no, I see two bald eagles. And I'm driving, so I don't want to get in a wreck. And I'm like this. And all of a sudden, the two bald eagles come right over our car. And I stuck my head into the windshield and looked up. And I saw the two white heads and white tails as they flew right over our car. And I felt Jesus is there going like this too and enjoying it with me. (laughs) We're not looking at each other. We're both looking at this fun thing. So if if we all start intentionally building joy on Sundays here together, in your small groups, in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, you will be surprised. Just like with Zacchaeus, you'll be surprised at the changes you start to see in the people around you. Sometimes that's all they need. Sometimes they need more. Sometimes that's all they need, and it never hurts. Zacchaeus felt the joy of Jesus, and he was never the same person again. That is the power of joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we long to feel the warmth of your face shining on us. We also want your face to shine through us and onto our children, our spouses, our friends, all the people around us. And we are thankful for how happy Jesus was to be with Zacchaeus and that Jesus has that same joy and same sparkle in his eye to be with us. May your joy overflow in this place, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.